Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, we have a special guest from philosophy. Professor Edward Mushery is a distinguished professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science, and the director of the Center for Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. His research is on the intersection between cognitive science and philosophy. And for our episode, he will be sharing with us his recent research on a topic that is extremely important for psychology today: replication. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Much for joining us on the podcast today. So today we will start our conversation with a recent piece of yours titled "What Is a Replication?" And I have to say that when I first saw the title, I had this immediate reaction, like, "Oh wow, that is the question that I would love to know the answer to." So in the psych department at Stanford, and I'm sure in psychology in general, in recent years there's this ongoing conversation about replication crisis, and more and more people start to conduct projects related to replication. And there's like this field called replication science. So yes, it's kind of important to know what a replication is in the first hand. So I'm wondering, do you mind just sharing your answer a little bit? Absolutely, yes. Thank you for having me uh, uh, today, sir. Real pleasure to、uh, be joining you for this podcast. And you're quite right that since maybe the end of the first decade of the 21st century, there's been a real concern in psychology, but not not only in psychology, also in the biomedical biomedical sciences about replication. We found that many studies don't replicate very well in psychology, but also in in medicine and in other fields, ecology and psychiatry and genetics. Uh, and so there's been a real effort to reassess、uh, what we take to be empirical findings, and replication has been the main tool—not the only tool, but the main tool for for doing that. Now, when I started、uh, working on the topic maybe five years ago, I was very surprised to find out that there is no answer. At least back then, there were no to be an exaggeration. There were very few answers to the question: What is a replication? Everyone was doing replication. People were debating about the value of doing replication. But the obvious question, what is a replication,、uh, was just、uh, had no straightforward answer、uh, in in the literature. So that was actually the starting point, and I was really puzzled by that because I felt, you know, look, some of the debates、uh, in in psychology, in the biomedical sciences about the value of replication, really are hard to answer if you don't have a good sense of what's a replication, and also what's the point of replication. What are you trying to learn when you do a replication? So that's that's how I got started in in this project.、Um, so now I can、uh, just tell you about、um, what I take replications to、um, to be,、um, and I have a, a very narrow view of、uh, replication because I think it's important to distinguish replication from a few other activities that look like replication, but that are really quite different in spirit, and I call them extension.、Um, So the main difference between a replication and an extension is that a replication is trying to assess the reliability of an original experiment by、uh, changing some of some aspects of the original experiment. 
By contrast, and some aspects of the original experiment that are meant to be changeable, and I'll try to explain a bit what that means a little bit later. Mm -hmm. By contrast, an extension is going to be changing also some aspects of an original experiment, but it's going to be changing some aspects of an experiment that are not meant to be changeable in the original experiment. So let me try maybe to give, so uh, that seems to be a bit abstract, but I think looking at examples really really shows that we must distinguish these two type of activities. Mm -hmm. Take, for example, a study you do on human beings. And you get an interesting experiment that will result in psychology or in, in, in medicine, the biomedical sciences. And you are uh, not, you, your goal is to generalize about human beings as a whole, as a group. You're not making a claim that you would find the same result if you were to move from human beings to chimpanzees, for example. Mm-hmm. You're, you're expecting to generalize to chimpanzees, uh, sorry, to human beings. So you're, you're the population here uh, to which you want to generalize is fixed. Now, you reduce the experiment on chimpanzees and you find the same result. Uh, That's an extension, not a replication. Why? Because you've changed something, namely you've changed the target population, you've moved from human beings to chimpanzees, but the original study was not meant to apply to chimpanzees. It was only meant to apply to human beings. Right. So here we've changed something in the original study, but something that was meant to be held fixed. And when we do that, I call that an extension. By contrast, if I would do the original study and I change something that was meant to be changeable, namely the specific participants in the study, right? So John and and Mark and Miriam and so on and so forth. So the specific subjects or participants in the study, they're changeable, right? No one thinks that they are essential to original study. If I change that, um, uh, uh, and, and if, but if I do not change the aspects of the studies that are not meant to be changeable, I have what I call a replication. So that's a, that's a core distinction. Uh, on the one hand, we have replications, which changes, uh, which change uh, what is changeable. And on the other hand, we have extension that change what is not changeable. And I think that's a really important distinction because it does distinguish two types of activities in the sciences, right? When you go beyond somehow the original study by seeing whether it generalizes to new aspects of the world, right? Or, and when you don't go beyond the original study and just try to see whether uh, it actually describes the very aspects of the world that it was meant to be describing. So that's, that's the first uh, attempt. No, it, I have a much more precise definition in the paper. But what I wanted to, to, to do, one of the things I wanted to do was to distinguish between these two activities, extensions and, 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 and replications. So that's, that's a, a non, um, uh, an intuitive uh, characterization of, of the project. Um, go ahead. I guess I'm kind of intrigued by this like concept of like changeable aspects of experiments versus unchangeable exp- aspects of experiments. So I guess I'm wondering, a question that I would have for this concept is, to what extent like a certain aspects of experiment is changeable is something that experimenters will know a priori before conducting the experiment? This is an excellent question. So um, in, in, in psychology, as you know, there is a technical notion, a technical term to, dis- to characterize the changeable aspect. And there's a distinction that psychologists draw between what they call a fixed factor and a random factor. 
So a fixed factor, uh, a random factor is going to be an aspect of an experiment, for example, the type of participants, that, such that the participants could have been different, right? So uh, there's a more, again, there's a more technical definition, but I think that will be it for, that will be good enough for now. So the participants uh, to an experiment are a random factor because you could have chosen other, other participants. Now, sometimes some aspects of an experiment are fixed factor. You're not meant to be changing them. Uh, they could not have been different. Take, for example, a case study uh, uh, in neuropsychology, for example. You're working on a given patient, HM, right? Uh, it's a case study. That patient cannot be substituted with another patient. You're working on that specific individual. If you do history or political science, you're often going to do case studies, right? And you, here as a participant, what psychologists call the experimental unit, is a fixed factor. You're not, you're not taking that participant or that specific object of the case study to be substitutable, interchangeable with something else, right? So you have this distinction between random factors and fixed factors. And the question you're asking me uh, is, what do we take to be a random factor in psychology? Why are we assuming that participants, for example, are changeable, while other aspects of the study are not? What makes it the case that uh, something is a random factor or a fixed factor? And when we characterize something as a random factor, how do we decide how changeable something is, right? So for example, can, can, can I replace, um, you know, for example, if I do my, my study with American participants, can I replace my participants with um, participants coming from Mexico or France, um, since I'm French, and or people from Australia or people from South Africa? Uh, if it happens that all my participants are white, can I replace them with um, um, African-Americans, for example, uh, in an American context? How do I know about that? That's really an excellent question. Uh, so disappointing answer, but I think the true answer is that there is no a priori principle that decides the scope of the generalization. I think it's up to the psychologist to decide beforehand what she, or the biomedical scientist, to decide beforehand what she intends the generalization to be about. Right? And I think that's an important aspect that has emerged over the last five years and that has been that has been extensively debated uh, maybe over the last two or three years, is psychology should be explicit about the scope of the generalization. Uh, you should, I think psychology should, and biomedical scientists should specify that they intend their claim to be about a given population when they take an aspect of their experiment to be a random factor, to be changeable in the way I described a few minutes ago. Uh, and I think, it's, it, you can't know it a priori whether this hypothesis is right, whether you're right to aim to generalize to human beings or maybe just to, let's say, Americans or maybe just to a subset of Americans. Or maybe even you can generalize to all primates. You can't know that a priori, but you should be explicit about the scope of your, of your generalization. And, and uh, um, that's something, it's remarkable, but that's something psychologists and I think probably biomedical scientists too have been very casual about. Um, you know, it's very rare to find people to say, to say explicitly, I take this experimental finding to be a description of the psychology of all human beings or a description of the psychology of Westerners. Um, so people are more sensitive about that these days. But I think it's still 
um, an aspect of science where scientists can make substantial progress in terms of how explicit they are. And of course, because it's a hypothesis, an empirical hypothesis, it can be tested, right? So if you claim that your generalization is true of all human beings, but your subjects are biased samples, it happens to be uh, Americans, Americans maybe of a certain age, then you can, of course, test it, right? By resampling, um, by resampling um, uh, human, human beings, uh, maybe with different characters, right? Uh, either a pure random sample or some, some form of intentional sampling. Um, yeah, so I know towards the like the end of your paper, you kind of discuss about how it is kind of important for the experimenter to specify and pre-register their hypothesis a priori okay. about their intentions. And I also know uh, there's kind of recent debates about like whether pre-registration is this kind of like solve all, like the one fit all like problem solutions. I'm not really well versed at that debate, but I know there are kind of pushbacks about people kind of thinking that, oh, there are kind of one camp of people saying that, oh, we should just pre-register everything. Pre-registration will help the psychology. It's just like going to save the replication crisis. And there are also people saying that pre-registration is kind of at best redundant and uh, it's kind of like treating the symptoms, but not the roots of the problem. So I'm wondering whether you can share your thoughts on what are the values of pre-registration and what are some potential fallbacks on just like putting all the acts in this one basket, which is pre-registration everything. Yeah, so it's, it's um, uh, indeed pre-registration has been debated extensively over the last uh, 10 years. I, I, I do believe it's an extremely useful tool. Um, I do not believe, however, it is a magical bullet that's going to somehow solve all the issues of science. It's an extremely useful tool um, for a few reasons. The first one is that it compels scientists to be explicit about what they want to be doing when they do an experiment. It compels them to be um, honest, really. Um, and I think that's its really main virtues. And it compels them to be honest in a few ways. To tell them what hypotheses they actually are testing, what data analytic techniques they are committed, committing, committed, committing themselves to be using, and to relate to what we are talking about, what the scope of their generalizations uh, 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 is, you know, how broadly they plan their claim to be to be true. So it, it's, it, and in that respect, it prevents them from spinning stories once they've got data. Uh, so that's, I think, an extremely useful tool for keeping scientists honest. Uh, I think it's not an accident that um, pre-registration is actually part of other sciences. The psychologists are debating about it, why it has been in place in the bio biomedical sciences now for nearly 14, 15 years. Um, you know, you can't do um, uh, uh, an, uh, 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 a type three clinical trial if you don't pre-register your, your study, right? Um, it has limitations, uh, but the limitations are not the one people usually mention. So people are usually concerned about um, replication, uh, sorry, pre-registrations preventing scientists to explore their data. But I think that's a, that's, that's a mistake. Pre-registration does not prevent scientists from exploring their data. It prevents scientists from exploring their data and pretending that any result they find from the exploration is the one they had in mind in the first place. 
Right. So it's perfectly compatible to, as many people have, have pointed, it's perfectly compatible with per registration to actually have an exploratory approach to, to data. Um, it just keeps scientists honest. The real drawback, I think, of, of pre registration is that no one checks them. And they're very poorly done. Uh, uh, um, you know, it's it's they're on the line. Most studies these days are pre-registered, but most pre-registrations are very vague. Uh, they're just done as a way to be able to say when you report the papers that the paper was pre-registered. Uh, people pre-registered a very large number of studies, a very large number of, of uh, uh, analyses. And in the papers they publish, only report a subset of this hypothesis, a subset of the analysis, indicating that they are, in fact, p-hacking, uh, but uh, and claiming that their practices have been pre-registered. And my suspicion, but I don't have any hard evidence for that, is that uh, peer, review, peer reviewers rarely go back to the pre-registration and rarely compare it in great detail or with great care to the reported results. I mean, I review a lot myself for, for psychology, for biopsychology journals, uh, empirical work. And I try to compel myself to go back to pre-registration when it's accessible. But I have to say it's a drag uh, because it adds, it adds to uh, the work the, the peer reviewer is doing. And, and, and I do worry that um, the fact that there is no that it's really not used as part of the process of uh, peer reviewing really undermine it, any value it might have. So I think for me, the, the, the drawback is not so much in preventing exploration, because I think that's a red herring, mm -hmm. than in being, uh, in a sense, um, uh, undermined by scientists themselves, by, by having very vague pre-registrations, which are useless, and by peer reviewers not comparing them to, to the original data. I think uh, comparing the published, the submitted papers to the original pre-registration. A much better, much, I think a much better format is actually uh, the one that some journals have embraced where you submit your paper before collecting the data. Mm -hmm. And you get peer reviewed based on your um, um, submit on your um, theory, the interest of the hypothesis, your data collection plan, and your data analysis analytic plan. Uh, and you get accepted based on that independently of the results you're finding. I find that actually a much, a much more interesting strategy because it somehow goes around um, um, the vagueness of pre-registrations and peer reviewers somehow not doing their that duty. Uh, I don't want to blame their peer reviewers. You know, peer reviewers work for free. It's a, it's a public good, and they have a lot of work to do. Uh, so it's very it's perfectly understandable that they they don't check all all the details. But but it does undermine the significance of pre-registration. I believe. Yeah. So I think. I heard some people discussing about like the, the format of pre-registered report, which is like you just basically just submit your pre-registration to the journal and then you do the study after it got approved. And no matter what the result come out, you will still get the publication. But on the other hand, I also remember hearing some discussions from more senior faculty about how like this format, it's like sounds good in theory. It's just like a wonderful thing for science in general. But in practice, especially it's actually 
kind of bad for the junior scientists, especially for people who wanted to like go to the job market or get hired. So I think there's this whole, I guess, a bigger issue in the picture, which is the whole like scientific reform. There, I think there are a lot of kind of like leaking holes in the process about like it's not about the practice, the method. It's about the kind of the system that we build around scientific practice. And as you mentioned, this kind of issues about peer review, about like no one is actually checking the pre-registration, even if it will be good for people to pre-register. So I'm wondering if you have thought about like in terms of the current, the whole way how like science especially social science is structured. Do you think, do you have any idea of like how we can moving forward better? I know there are a lot of discussion about, oh my gosh, this system is built like as if it is like in 16 centuries and it takes months and years to like get things published, get pre-reviewed. We can clearly do better than this. So I'm wondering, have you thought about like issues related to the whole like scientific reform? Yeah, I, I, I'm actually writing a book on the, on the topic. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I'm, very, uh, I'm very much interested in, in uh, whether science works well, where it fails to work well, and how we can do science better. Um, I believe it's, um, uh, it's extremely hard to do better science, um, not because I believe science works well. I actually believe that science does not work extremely efficiently. I think it's a reasonably west, it's quite a wasteful uh, social process, but reform is extremely uh, difficult. Um, uh, it's extremely difficult because it's it's um, not in everyone's interest to uh, reform science, uh, and for obvious reasons, it's not in, in the interest of people who've made it uh, because they've made it in a given system. It's not in the interest of people who are. It's not always in the interest of people who are trying to make it. Junior junior scientists because they're learning to play a given game and scientific reform might actually introduce a lot of noise and uncertainties about how to, uh, to, how to be successful. Um, it's not always in the interest of the lay public. It's not always in the interest of the policymakers. So there's actually, um, uh, I think scientific reform is extremely difficult. And I think the idea that we can do a scientific revolution, uh, meaning changing drastically the social system of science, is probably erroneous. Um, I think there's too many conservative forces at play in, in, in science that uh, reforms have to be very gradual and very limited. In my sense, and that's why I do like pre-registration in principle, despite what I said a few minutes ago, uh, about being corrupted in some way by, by scientists themselves, um, I, I, I think what we want is nudges. I think what we want is uh, small changes in the social structure of, of science that are going to have dramatic effects or large effects, right? So that because they're not revolutionary, but because they are actually very simple, very simple to grasp and, and very simple to implement, but can have a very positive effect, they're much more likely to be embraced by a scientific community than very large um, uh, uh, revolutionary changes to the social system of science. Let me give you an example of what I had in mind. Um, it's maybe to some extent an, um, an ironic example. Uh, we can come back to that. A few years ago, I was one of the many co-authors of the paper uh, about redefining statistical significance, which was published in Nature of Human Behavior. That paper suggested that we uh, cut the significance level, if you're using uh, a classical statistics, by an order of magnitude. 
So instead of having a, a significance level like 0 0.05, as is, as is common in psychology and in other sciences, not in all, in other, but in other sciences, we would have a significance level at 0 0.005. Now, it's a very simple change. It has its nice virtue. It's a very simple nudge because it does not require people to retrain themselves. It does not require scientists to learn new types of statistics. It does not require to change incentives. It does not require to change radically the way papers get to be published, uh, the way papers get to be reviewed, and so, and, and so forth. It's a minimally intrusive change. But it has dramatic impact, I think, on the quality of science. It requires scientists to collect much larger sample sizes uh, to, get, to get significant results. By, by collecting much, much larger uh, uh, sample sizes, they are much less likely to have, um, to, uh, uh, to, to have false positives among significant results. So the false positive rate decreases dramatically. In addition, p-hacking um, uh, gets much harder as uh, exponentially harder as uh, the significance level is decreased. So it's very easy to p-hack uh, uh, when the significance level is at 0 0.05, much harder to p-hack when the significance level is at 0 0.005. So you see, the reason why I really like this very simple proposal it's not because I, I believe uh, it will solve all the issues of, of science, nor is it because I'm, a, I'm, I'm deeply committed to classical statistics in contrast to other way of analyzing data like Bayesian statistics. It's rather because I believe it has this virtue of being a very simple nudge, very easy to understand, but have possibly dramatic consequences for, 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 for science, really would improve science for the best. So what I'm really interested in is these uh, nudges that lead scientists, sometimes without them being aware uh, you know, uh, of why that would work better, but would lead scientists to do better science. Um, so that's that a type of, of uh, policy changes in science. I'm actually very keen on, on, on seeing, seeing implemented. Now, as I said, it's a bit of an ironical example. Now, um, first paper was published in 2018, I believe. Um, um, it's been cited very often. Some people have embraced it. But two years, now three years after its publication, the fact is uh, it has not become part of the everyday practice of, of science. No journal, to my knowledge, requires uh, or expects that by default, you know, things are always negotiable, but by default, the significance level should be put at 0 0.005 and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I, it's, it's a type, you know, I was really, I, I started answering your question by highlighting the conservative nature of the scientific system and the fact that scientific reform is extremely difficult to implement. That led me to talk about nudges, which are, you know, it's very simple changes that have dramatic effects. Uh, um, um, and I give you an example, but even that example, despite I, I, I do think it's maybe one of the best examples of what a, a positive nudge would be for, for science, hasn't been widely embraced by the scientific community. Uh, Pre-registration has been widely embraced, but it's been widely embraced because it's very easy to make toothless, and that's what we talked about earlier. Uh, so I, in some of my uh, more pessimistic days when it's gloomy, when the weather is gloomy in Pittsburgh, which is <laughs> One day out of two, or even two days out of three, as you know, <laughs> uh, I, I get somewhat pessimistic about scientific reform. 
uh, I feel it's needed, but it's it's extremely hard to bring about. Yeah, since you mentioned like the kind of the conservative nature of this scientific enterprise, I feel like this is kind of like in sharp contrast of like what the or like most of like the scientific like scientists of like political affiliations. I'm sure like most of them will be identified like liberal themselves, and they're like embrace of like progressive society. So I guess this is kind of like a very ironic and interesting contrast between like the people who are actually doing the thing and the, the the system itself. So have have you ever thought about like what is the nature, like what is some intrinsic features of scientific enterprise that makes it to be like conservative and reluctant to change? Even if like yeah, I, dramatic scientific revolutions in the past for, I don't know, many, many times. No, I, I it, it is, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I, you can have two different views on the matter, I suspect. I mean, you could think it's something specific to science or that in general social reform is difficult. And, um, you know, I, I, and I'm not sure which view is, is, is right. Um, on the one hand, I think in general social reform is very difficult as soon as people's interests um, are at stake. There will be a lot of counteracting force. Um, um, you know, it's very difficult to change the tax code in, in, in the USA or to, in, to, change, to, to have tax reforms, even among well-meaning liberals who want to help people because it just undermines a material interest to, to change the tax, the tax code or the tax system. So I, I do think there are general forces at, at play in any system. I do believe there's something a little bit specific, but I haven't really given, given full thought to your, I think, excellent question. But there's something a bit specific about the social system of science, which is its autonomy. And at least, um, you know, for a very long time, but at least since the 1940s, when uh, the US government and other governments invested a huge amount of public money in science, Scientists have been very keen on being autonomous in the sense that the direction of science is made by and large by scientists. Scientists decide who should get promoted, who is doing good science, what paper are good. We don't expect the federal government to select among the good papers who are, tell us that vaccine, you know, tell us you know, that's good science, that's bad, that's bad science. Scientists have the final say on scientific matters. Now, policymakers can decide about direction, because they want to fund more that type of research, more this type of research, which is fair because that's public money. Uh, but at the end of the day, when it comes to deciding um, what is good science and what is bad science, uh, scientists have, insisting, have been insisting for now 70 years since this since the influx of public money in science in the 1940s on the autonomy of science. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, science is particularly conservative, because scientists are very keen on preserving that autonomy. And, and they feel that many reforms, I, I suspect that there's a worry that at least some reforms might threaten the autonomy of science or might give you know, outsiders, like policymakers, a sense that they have to intervene on science. Um, you know, uh, over the last 10 years, um, reformers, people who want to change uh, science. I've been sometimes accused of undermining science. Uh, and I think the worry here is that by questioning the quality of science, we are, given, we are giving um, uh, policymakers, outsiders, 
um, uh, people who are not scientists, uh, a, a reason or justification for intervening on the on on science and therefore and therefore undermines the autonomy of science. That that might be uh, a reason why uh, social reform is more difficult because we don't want to give outsiders scientists don't want to give non-scientists a say in the social organization of science. Um, it, it might be part of the story. I'm, it's, I'm, I'm speculating here, um, but, but, I, but, I, but I do think that's one of the aspects in which the social structure of science is quite different from, let's say, other social systems that we are um, known, that we are acquainted with. That, I think that's a very interesting perspective to take in terms of like how scientists, in order to maintain their own autonomy, kind of re- reluctant for the outsider. But on the other hand, I'm also thinking about how I guess in some sense, the distinction between scientists versus non-scientists, it's kind of blurry in the sense that there are people with like STEM background with a PhD who goes into the policy realm. But in some sense, it's almost like by choosing not, by, by not choosing a career in academia, they are like automatically excluded from like being the scientist community. Mm-hmm. So this kind of bias for everyone who has a PhD should stay in academia. It will be bad if you go to the industry in the real world. So maybe yeah. this is like, have you ever thought about like where this bias comes from? Yeah. Well, so at first, I mean, I, I think you're quite right. The fact that I was, of course, what I was presenting was a bit of a caricature in the sense that between the policymaker who is a complete outsider, the insider with a PhD in some science and posi- positions the NSF or the NIH in some review board, there's all this gray area of, let's say, people with PhDs who, be, who get out, as I see, they might become policymakers, but with a close contact with the science, the scientific journalists who often know science very well, the popularizers, uh, and the people like me who are just not scientists, uh, but of course spend quite a bit of time thinking about science and actually doing science at times. Um, so there's all this gray, uh, all this gray area. I think that that's, you're quite right to point that out. But I do think the social structure of science is also really um, built onto this inside-outside inside boundary. You know, if you go to the review board of the NSF or the NIH, it's a scientific review board, right? So the people who review your applications are scientists, and they're supposed to be actually some of the best scientists, right? Uh, then uh, there's an interaction with policymakers in terms of scientific priorities, funding priorities, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, which grant is a good grant, is really meant to be decided by, by, by science. It's really an interesting question where it comes from. Um, you know, it's connected, of course, to peer review. Peer review uh, is, in fact, a very recent invention. Uh, people say it's, it's, it dates to the 17th century and, and the Royal Society in London. Not so, actually. It's a very, in its, in its uh, modern form, it actually was invented in the beginning of the 20th century and really became institutionalized in the second half of the 20th century. Ooh. Yeah, and it's, it's really part of the same system of a lot of public money being invested in science following the Second World War, around the Second World War, and uh, an incredible increase in the size of the scientific community, right? Um, so if you look in the, 19, in the 1940s, when the Manhattan Project was developed that led to the um, development of the atomic bomb, um, a few dozens, maybe a few hundred, but maybe just a few dozens of physicists 
were really uh, could really you know, the whole science, the whole physics community in in North America could be part of the project directly or indirectly. So it was really a small group of people. Now the physics community is much larger. To say nothing of the biomedical community, which is enormous, and uh, also the behavioral community, the behavioral sciences. So there was a change in the funding, in the size of the scientific community, and its social organization there. And as part of this revolution. Uh, I think there was really a great emphasis on the inside-outside boundary. And why that was created is really a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure why it was decided that it was the right way to organize science. It's, I think it's partly because of the greater professionalization. You know, it goes with the idea that, uh, you know, you can't be an amateur when you do science. It's, you know, you, and you have to specialize. You have to go through a very extensive training um, and if it's if it's a professionalization, professionalization, if being a scientist is the outcome of a professional training, then you have to have experts and non-expert. Um, so I think there's a, an, an interesting set of social changes that, that emerged in the middle of the 20th century in science, and uh, autonomy was part of these uh, social social changes. And of course, it's not there's a reason, right? You don't want you know you want experts to to be involved in, in, in organizing and deciding what's good science and what's bad science. Um, but I think it might have consequences for the conservatism of, 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 of science. Um, um, yeah. I see. I see. That's very interesting. I, when I was talking to you, I almost, there was one moment I almost forgot that like you're like primarily identified as a philosopher. So I was like, oh, so in some sense, you're kind of like part of the outsider community to the science as well. But on the other hand, I know you kind of works on the intersections between philosophy and psychology slash cognitive mm -hmm. science. So as we are wrapping up this conversation, I guess I'm wondering if you can share some thoughts on, um, what about like philosophies of science? Like what, like how do you see knowing about philosophy of science can be beneficial to practitioners in psychology? So it's, yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's a terrific question. Uh, in fact, it's, it's such a good question that I've been, and I'm not sure what I'll do it, but for a few years, I've been wanting to write sort of a textbook <laughs> or to have maybe of a summer school or, or something like that dedicated to uh, professional scientists, in particular to people in the behavioral sciences, to, to psychology. Um, uh, I, I, I think many of the debates that have been going on over the last 10 years about the, the methods of science, about the goals of science, from things as narrow as what is a replication to things as, as broad as what are the good incentives for science are deeply philosophical and tied to questions that philosophers of science have been thinking about now for decades and sometimes centuries. Um, and I do think that um, sometimes uh, psychologists reinvent the wheel and make it square as a first approximation. Uh, uh, you know, there are some debates that somehow you feel, well, we've been thinking about that and we've gone through this through these motions already a, a few years ago, uh, a few decades ago sometime. Um, and, and in fact, some of the leading voices uh, in the debate about the mythology of psychology have gone back to, um, to philosophy of science and have reread some of the leading philosophers of science uh, to, uh, to, to, get, to get some inspirations about, about how to modify science. So there's actually a lot of, a lot of places in philosophy of science uh, that could be useful for behavioral scientists. It goes the other way around. Uh, uh, I think there's a, when you're a philosopher of science, 
you really want to pay close attention to some of the debates going on in science, not simply the substantive debate about the, the world, but the methodological debates about how to do uh, good science. Um, um, because practitioners sometimes might raise, might raise new questions, they might have insight, some of the problems that are raised might be entirely, entirely, entirely new, and uh, uh, the philosophers might have actually might find a lot of food for thought in some of these debates. So yeah, in, in a way, I, 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 I wish, um, I wish it would be, I wish, I wish there were more a two-way exchange between philosophy of science and, and, and psychology. Um, psych- philosophers are much slower than scientists. We, we like to ponder, we like to think. So sometimes it's hard to be in a lively interaction with scientists when, uh, it takes us five years to come up with a paper and have a considered view. Meanwhile, the debate in the sciences has, has moved very quickly uh, to, uh, to another stage. Um, so that's one of the reasons why somehow uh, the, the time scale of thinking in science and in, in philosophy are a little bit different. That's why sometimes it's actually a little bit hard to have a, a, a fruitful discussion. But I, I, I do think we should encourage uh, these uh, exchanges between philosophers and scientists. Yeah, if there's actually like a summer school on this this topic, I would definitely be the first to sign up. It sounds so interesting and I would love to know more. Yeah, Yeah, so I guess we can wrap up our conversation here. And I want to thanks again for joining us on podcast. It's wonderful to talk to someone who is like slightly outside of psychology, but like knows so much about psychology in terms of talking about replication and scientific reform. Thank you very much for the invitation.